Well, welcome again this morning to the Springs. My name is Shadrick. I have the honor and privilege of serving as a campus missionary now at Houston Tillerton University and St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. But this is still home. San Marcos is still home to me. It's my home church, and so I'm thankful for the opportunity here. Thank you for Pastor Peter and his ability to say fleek on an announcement. I've never heard that before. You got it, man. So this is awesome. And we also want to welcome um, our Springs big kids in the church today. So thank you all for worshiping our Springs kids. Let's give a little hand for our Springs kids. Parents will be sure to keep the message PG today. All right. (laughs) for that. So um, let's continue in worship by studying God's word. That's another reason why we're here. So today's message is entitled, What is the Gospel? Now, I know that many of you have been going through this series here at this church for the past couple weeks about what is the gospel, but I should assume that you are the perfect Christians and all of you know Jesus and you're evangelizing to everybody in your neighborhood and everybody on campus and all you Apple users are preaching to Siri, hoping that she gets saved, right? I hope you're doing all of those things and preaching to her, but my job is to assume today that this is your first time being in this church and you know nothing about Jesus, And you know nothing about the gospel. And if you do know something about Jesus and you do know what the gospel means, my job is to remind you that every issue that we face today, every decision that we make, everything that we view our life through has to be viewed through the life of Jesus and what the gospel is and what God has done for us. So we're going to get started with today's message with a little bit of history. So in 1945, April of 1945, World War II ended and the Nazi Germany army was actually defeated. Now, this was important for a particularly, really a particular group of people, and those people were the Jews. Now, the reason why that this meant so much to them is because when the war ended, it allowed those who were enslaved in many different concentration camps to now have a free lifestyle. How many of you know that's good news, right? That's a very big thing. Now, the problem was is that those who were in those concentration camps still continued to live as the people who were enslaved. And this was the reason why they had not heard that the war was officially over. So they continued to live in the way that they were living, even though they weren't supposed to, because they had not heard the news. And how important is this, too, that we can know and kind of hear things about God, but unless we actually hear the gospel and we apply it to our lives, we will continue to live as people who are enslaved. That is what happens when you do not hear the good news. And the gospel comes from this Greek word named evangelion, which means good news. And I'm sure you guys have basically recited this throughout our services many times throughout the week, but I'm going to have you participate with me. So we're going to read it together. So this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving he was God and offering salvation to all of those who will believe in him. Sounds pretty cool, but what does that actually mean? And why does that even apply to our life? Well, let's talk, first talk about what the gospel is not. The gospel is not good advice or a manual by which you should live your life by. Growing up, I heard the Bible was the basic instructions before leaving earth. Um, that sounds cool, but that's not exactly what we're supposed to be doing. The gospel is not a set of rules that you should follow to make yourself feel as though you are a morally good person. Because we have to ask ourselves, what does even good mean? And what is morality? See, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is about the completed work that Christ did for us on the cross and allowing us to be back into a full, intimate, pure, and holy relationship with him. Essentially, the gospel is a summary word that tells about all that God has done for us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Again, it's not a systematic religion. 
a step-by-step process for you to be a better person and your best life ever or anything like that. This is about God choosing the people that he has loved and bringing them back into a relationship with him. A guy by the name of J.I. Packer, who's a theologian. Now, a theologian is just somebody who studies the Bible. They're really, really poor theologians, but this one's pretty good. He simply just studies and interprets the Bible and says this about the gospel, that God saves sinners. Just that basic, God saves sinners. So God is saving you, and especially me, from ourselves, our lifestyle, and the choices that we make. Essentially, our life is actually God's mission field. How many of you know, like, you being saved from a dangerous situation is a good thing? So I'll tell you a little story about myself and some friends that happened. So I went to school here at the Texas State University, and I played football. One of the things that we like to do in our free time was for some odd reason, like, we wanted to go to the river. So we would go to the river, and one day, my teammate, who's been in this church, so I won't say his name because I won't embarrass him just in case he ever hears us and comes back. All right, we decided to go to the river, and he decides to say, you know what? I'm a, I think it's a good idea. I'm going to jump off of sawgrass today into the river. I'm going to tell you why that's not a good idea. One, he couldn't swim, so that's not smart. And two, at the bottom of the river at that particular part, there's like this little tidal pool kind of area thing that like if you jump in that area, then it'll suck you down completely and you really can't get out of it unless you know how. So mind you, I have this six foot four, 275 pound Nigerian fullback who can't swim, deciding to jump off of salt, salt, well, salt grass. Sorry, it was something else at the time. And he drowned. He's like, he's screaming. He's going crazy. And us as brothers, like, we're living up to the full stereotype. Like, we don't, we're not swimming either, nor are we trying to save him at all. So he's like, hey, somebody come save this brother. Like, please, like, somebody help. And we look over to our right, and there's this little tiny white guy. I mean, like, 140 pounds, soaking wet, maybe 5'3", and he's wearing a Speedo. And so we're just like, he's like, hey, man, like, you can't jump in that area. Like, I'll go save him. We like, man, all right, bro, like, go, like, just do it, man. You know what I'm saying? So at that time, my friend is screaming for his life. And he's not thinking about who can save him. He's just like, I want to be saved. And so it looks really foolish for this little bitty small white guy in a Speedo to be saving some six foot four, 275 pound fullback. But it didn't matter because he wanted to be saved. And then this is exactly why, like what the gospel is. It's like God will take things that seem foolish to this world or things that don't make sense and that he came and that he saved us. And you know what? That's the only option that we have. Amen. It's all we got. And see, there's a million ways to present the gospel, but there's only one way to accept it. You know, there's a million ways we can present it all different ways, but there's only one way to accept the gospel. And that's by grace through faith and putting your trust in Jesus. And God's rescue plan for our life is doing it that way. But more importantly, his rescue plan for all of humanity is actually involving you in that process. And we're going to talk about that a little later. But if you don't leave here with anything else today, I want you to remember this one statement that your life and your soul are only safe in the hands of Jesus. Your life and your soul and everything that encompasses that is only safe in the hands of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that your word is alive and active and it pierces the hearts of men and women like a double-edged sword. It shows us what is truth and how we don't live up to that. And God, I'm praying that we would begin to see you and all that you provide for us through your life um, and everything that you have to offer. God, I pray that we would become disciples of you and not just converts to our own thoughts and our own opinions. In Jesus' name, amen. Your life and your soul are only safe in the hands of Jesus. I have three points today in which I want to try to explain the gospel effectively to you, and it's basically this. Number one, the holiness and goodness of God. 
Number two, the sinfulness of man. And number three, the rescue mission for your life. So number one, the holiness and goodness of God. First John 1 John 1.5 tells us this. This is the message that we have heard from him, him being God, and proclaimed to you, which is you and I, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. See, everything about God is holy. There is no flaw in him. There is no imperfection. There is no stain or blemish. Everything about God and who he is and what he's created is perfect. And there are many characteristics that we can describe God about. But one thing that sticks out in the Bible is this, is that God proclaims himself and people proclaim God as holy, holy, holy. This, holy, this word holy means in the Greek to be sacred and to be set apart. So to be sacred means is that he is the only one who is worth our adoration, our worship, our praise, our devotion to. And number two, meaning that he's set apart, that he's not like anything else of this world. There will never be anything like him, nor will there be anyone like him. And if you ever want to be like him, it is him who's the one who has to change you and put his nature inside of you. Amen. There's no other way around it. And not only that... When you are holy, it also means that you are hopeful. First John, 1, 1 John 3 and 3 says this. It says, everyone who thus hopes in him, being God, purifies himself as he is pure. This is saying this. The aspect of holiness has a lot to do with hopefulness. If you ever find somebody who has no hope, who doesn't believe in Jesus and what he's done, or more importantly, don't, doesn't believe in what God can do in your life, there is something about them that is unholy. So put it like this, if I am not hopeful today, which there are some things I'm not hopeful for about in my life, that means I am unholy. If you are not hopeful in certain areas of your life, guess what? You're not fully pure and you're not fully holy. So let's just say this, say, just, I just want you to repeat after me. Say, if I'm not hopeful, if I'm not hopeful then I am not holy. holy. Alright, so God who is set apart, sacred, holy, full of hope, is who God is. And we can rest assured in that because there is no flaw in him. Now, from the beginning of the time, the Bible tells us that everything that God created was good. And it stated that when he created the heavens and the earth, it says that it was good. When he created the birds in the air and the beasts of the sea and the creatures of the land, he said that it was good. When he made light and day and darkness and night and all those things, he said that it was good. And more importantly, he did this. When God created his most precious possession, which is you and I and the image of him, he looked back at it and he said, it was very good. Yeah. And the reason why you and I and God could say that basically that we're, what he created was very good is because we were made in his image. We were made in the image of the only person who is good. So let me encourage you by saying this, that when God created you, he didn't make a mistake. I don't care what somebody has spoken over you, what you think about yourself. From the very beginning of time, God said that when he created you and I, that it was very good. Because goodness is a characteristic of God's nature. How important is it to know that when we go outside and we marvel over the things like the Grand Canyon and beautiful skies and rivers and everything that God, before the beginning of time, decided to say, you know what, this world needs you. It needs your attributes. It needs your characteristic. It needs your quirks. It needs the weird things about you. It wants all of you. You know what? God made you and he didn't make you with a mistake. Have you ever thought about that there's a God out there who thinks that much of you? And so there's one thing that we must always remember with all the distress in this world, with all the crazy things that are going on, that God is good. And this is one of his greatest characteristics. And his goodness is a basic attribute of his holiness. Now, this is very good news. But this is a lot of good news about who God is and not ourselves. So before we can really talk about the good news, we got to talk about the bad news. Because good news really isn't that good unless you know something is really bad, right? 
So for us to encompass how good something is, let's talk about the bad news. And that leads me to my second point, the sinfulness of man. This is the bad news. Because of the effects of sin, we in and of our own efforts cannot be in right standing with this good, holy, pure, and hopeful God. We have no hope of being good. And I know that may be, not be the nicest thing that you want to hear today, but this is what the Bible says. So your problem will maybe with God and not me, okay? So we have no hope in and of ourselves. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what breaks relationship with God, this holy, pure, and righteous God. And it starts with this concept called original sin. We know that many of us have heard the story of Adam and Eve, where they began to be disobedient according to God's command. And that's what allowed broken relationship to happen, because they were lustful in their hearts, meaning that they wanted something that wasn't theirs. And they were wise in and of their own sight, meaning that they were prideful. How many of us commit that, can admit that in some way, shape, or form we're prideful? If you can't admit it, then that's a sense of pride right there. <laughs> Like, we are all prideful in some way, form, or fashion. You know what? Romans one twenty five says this, not only about Adam and Eve, but about all of us as humanity. It says this. It says, they exchange the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature, the created things of this world, rather than the creator himself. Because of what Adam and Eve did, now all of us inherit this curse called sin. And sin, again, is what separates us from being in right relationship with God. And that makes us unholy. And men and women know that they're unholy because we do exactly what Adam and Eve did. When we do something wrong, we want to hide. We don't want anybody to see the bad parts of us. We always try to put our best foot forward. And you see that all the time, like with people going, quote unquote, like first dates. It's like, maybe we should just start asking people like, man, what's what's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the most weirdest thing about you? You know, because we always try to put this this facade up. But there's something wrong with us. There's something inherently wrong with us, and that is that that our ability to try to hide that is basically a showing of our unholiness. Because we are unholy, this means that we're not righteous. Righteousness really means this, that you are in right standing with God. And when you sin, and I sin, and everybody sins, we are not in right standing with God. And the only way that we can be in right standing with God, again, is if God himself changes us and puts his attributes inside of us. But we know that none of us are perfect, right? Is there anybody here perfect in this room? Okay, cool. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think so. Like, Jesus is here, but you know what I'm saying? He's not here in the flesh, so there's no perfect people in here, all right? But we know this because Romans 3, verse 10 through 12 says this. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So this scripture tells us that none of us are perfect. That's actually a good thing. So how many of us can all admit that we're sinners? Okay, so the debate no longer is if we are a sinner. The question is, what type of sinner are we? And we can basically break it down into two different categories. There is the rebellious sinner, and then there is the religious sinner. So the rebellious sinner is the one who seeks to save himself by rejecting God's law and creating his or own rules. So this is saying, God, I don't believe what your word says is true. And I think I'm smarter than you. So I'm going to live my life the way I want to. That's the rebellious sinner. And this is the religious sinner for many of us who've grown up in church or know God and all these different things. We all fall into this in some way, form, or fashion. The religious sinner seeks to save him or herself by accepting God's law, but by following it in their own strength. So what they are saying is, is God, I believe you. You're, you're God of the universe. You're the Lord of, of everything in my life. But I believe that I need to do this in my own strength. 
I don't believe that what you did on the cross was complete. I don't believe that when you said it was finished, it was really finished. So let me finish it with my own strength and my own effort. So the question I'm going to ask yourself is, what sinner are you? I want you to judge yourself and ask yourself that question. If all of us are sinners, which sinner are we? In which ways are we like Adam and Eve trying to be prideful and lustful in our own sight? Or more importantly, what ways are we running? What ways are we trying to do things in and of our own effort and our own strength? See, our hiding from God and our worthless sacrifices are all an indication of that we're trying to put ourselves in back in good graces of God, but we really can't. And for centuries, we've seen all throughout the Bible and all throughout the earth and really all throughout our lives that we really can't fix the problem, though we know that there's one there. So I want to ask you a little bit more of a personal question today. What is it that's in your life that you've seen that you can't fix? That no matter how hard you try, it's just not working out. Is it that every job that you start working, all of a sudden you feel like you get laid off and it's like, well, what's the point? Is it no matter how much time you put effort into your marriage or your relationships, it seems like it's just not getting better? Could it be for some of us who are students that no matter how hard we study, we're just not passing our classes? And we can't even pick our major. Like, we don't even know what we're doing here. We're just here, like, taking our parents' money and financial aid. Huh? Could it be for some of us who are just people who follow Jesus that no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to actually find a regular, consistent basis of reading our Bible, praying, and loving people? Or maybe it's some addiction that you don't want anybody to see for years that you tried to break but you can't get over. Or an inner anger issue that you see no matter how much you try to love people, you still find this rage inside of you. Or the way you view people is always judgmental. Or you have this era of anxiety and depression that you seem like you just can't get over. Or some sickness that just can't, you, get, 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 you really can't get healed from. Now these are all things that have to do with me. These are my problems. And I have to get help for it. Like going to counselors and clinical psychologists. And maybe you should too. Everybody has problems. These are just my issues, or could it be more importantly that for some of you, you really don't know who Jesus is, and if you were to die today, you really don't know what's on the opposite end of death. You don't know where your soul would actually go to. And every one of your thoughts and every one of your opinions are just that, and they don't matter because you have no lasting proof to prove what's on the other side of death because you've never been on that side. So now the question then is posed is this. If we see from Scripture that nobody seeks God, and that no one is righteous, and we can't save ourselves from our earthly problems. We definitely can't save ourselves from our problems that have to do after death. Who then is qualified to approach this righteous, holy, pure God and enter into his holiness for all of eternity? Who can save us from ourselves? Who can save us from the world's problems? And that leads me to the last point, the rescue mission for our lives. God will send himself as Jesus, to be the perfect sacrifice and the atonement for our unholiness, for our lack of our efforts in trying to be in right standing with him. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so as one act of righteousness led to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience they were made sinners, so by one man's obedience that many have been made righteous. Because of God's Perfect obedience, because of Christ's perfect obedience to God's word, and if we put our trust in him now, all of humanity can be deemed in right relationship with God. They can be deemed as righteous, meaning that you are now in right standing 
with God if you put your whole hope in him. Because he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect life. He is the only one who we can put our trust in because he is perfect and we are not. In Romans 5, 6 through 9, it says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How many of us know like in and of ourselves we're ungodly? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we see through scriptures because Christ died the death that we should have died. He died for unrighteous people like us that we can now be justified. And justified means this, is that when Christ died for you and you accepted him, it was just as if you've never sinned. Because his death says, I've taken all of your sin upon me. So now it doesn't look like you sin in the presence of God if you accept him. So this is basically it. This is basically who Jesus is. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we could uphold and have his righteousness. So the one who didn't sin is now sin, and now we are righteous and deemed as that because of God. If you put your trust in him, your whole entire life, your every decision is in God's hands. Now, many of us have heard that Jesus died, but do we actually know why? Why did he have to die? What makes Jesus different than any other person here on the side of the road who can say, hey, man, you know, like, I'll I'll die for you. You know, what's the difference? One, because he was perfect. And two, because of this. In Hebrews, it says that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. There is no sacrifice or anything that we could do to be in right standing with God. Somebody had to die, and it was Jesus. He had to. He had to shed his blood and we are forgiven based upon his blood because that scripture tells us that is the reason why we are justified. And he died the death that we should have died, but he also rose from the, he rose from the dead, proving that he was and still is God. I said he rose from the dead. And if you don't believe that every situation in your life, everything about you is dead inside of you too. Because if Christ didn't rise from the, rose from the dead, nothing could change. Nothing can change about your eternal status, and more importantly, nothing can change about the situations in your life that seem dead to as well. That's what makes him different than any other God. His resurrection over death proved his supremacy over death itself and over sin. Because of this, we are completely disqualified from all guilt and shame of everything we've ever done in life. This fulfilled a prophecy that was stated over 700 years ago in the book of Isaiah. And when Christ died and he rose from the dead, and when we accept him, now the power of his Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead now indwells us, meaning that our salvation is secure from ever the moment we accept him. Nothing else that we can do from everything else outside of the cross is our respect and our adoration towards God. But there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. You know what? That's a current status that you can have right now. And I'm going to tell you one of the most beautiful scriptures to me, at least in the Bible, comes from this book called Revelations. It's one of God's um, followers, this guy named John. Um, He had a crazy dream foretelling kind of the end of the world. And this is what he says in Revelations 19. He, being Christ, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, in the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. Now, 
In this world today, we have a little depiction of who we think Jesus is. Doesn't, I'm not saying this to be mean, but we have this depiction of like Jesus is this really nice looking man with beautiful blonde wavy hair, blue eyes, and he looks super sweet. And he has like this lamb over his shoulder. And he's like, come and love me, accept me. Well, in Revelations, it's quite different. It says Jesus has like fire in his eyes, swords coming out of his mouth. And it says he has this inscription on the inside of his leg. I don't know. Jesus could have been tatted up. We don't know. It's just it's an inscription there. We don't know what it means. But it says this, this last scripture says that when we see Jesus, when he returns for all of eternity, that his robe that he wears is dipped in blood forever. But all the people who are followers of him are wearing these fine white linens. And what that is saying is, is that when we get to heaven and God says, what's the basis that Shad can get into heaven? Jesus is like, look, I'm wearing all of his sin. I'm dipped in blood forever. You know what? And he wears my righteousness now. That is the basis for each and every person who gets into heaven. Is that when we see Jesus now, he is wearing our sin for all of eternity. And we get to wear his righteousness. And this is an act of grace. And to me, I say this all the time. It's not, grace is not some theological concept. Grace was manifested in this man named Jesus. And this is the gospel, a gospel not of something that we can boast in and of ourselves or our works or to try to be in right standing with God or to try to fix our problems, but in Jesus and him alone. And that, my friends, is good news. But I didn't necessarily believe all that all the time. See, my testimony is this. I prided myself on being a good guy. Everybody's like, Shan's a good guy. I mean, what does that even mean? Like, because I, you know, I hug people and kiss babies and all this other stuff. Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm a, I'm a good guy. But I prided myself on that. When I was eight years old, I actually gave my life to the Lord. But I remember after I was done, the preacher man at the time said, hey, man, just keep on working harder for God. So that's what I thought I had to do to earn God's love and affection. I would just try to be a good person. And really what that does is just make you a very religious person. It really does. And more importantly, it also, because it makes you a religious person, now you have to follow the approval of man your entire life. And what they have to say and what they have to say doesn't matter. And what I began to find is that every addiction in my life that I couldn't break from, God was beginning to show me, like, your discipline is not good enough. Your discipline is not good enough to be a good person, Shad. And I thought it was. And I tried to lead a Bible study and all these different things in high school, and nobody came. But everybody wanted to listen to me, get, like, get everyone hyped for, for the pep rally. So when I got to college, I literally was like, I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, maybe on my towel, I'll put Philippians 4 and 13 or John 3, 16, because that was the only scriptures I knew. And I put my identity in my ability to play football because that's all people knew me about. That's all they knew me for. Until I got diagnosed with an autoimmune and neuromuscular disease that actually ended my career and left me going down a spiral of a lifestyle that I will keep to myself, not because I'm ashamed, because we have kids in the room that just was not good. And I began to do anything and everything that was opposed to who Jesus was. And what, ended, what basically ended up happening is I began to see that I was putting my trust in somebody else's hands, and the trust that I was putting in was my own. And nothing could ever be fixed. And nothing ever seemed to go right. And the only thing I tried to do is that I tried to work harder to get over my addiction. So here it is, whatever problem it may be, again, because we have kids in the room, I'm going to try to fix that. But the sin below that sin was that I had an idol in my heart. I believed that that particular thing that I was doing was greater than who God was. But the sin below that sin was that I really didn't believe that Christ fully died for that. I really didn't believe that what Christ said he did for me was fully true. And so we addressed the top problem, 
And God's trying to get underneath below the surface and says, you don't trust me. You don't believe in me. You don't believe in everything that I did for you. So, so mainly this, until you fully accept that, to you, what I did for you is worthless. And that's how I live my life, spitting and rejecting in God. And this is the reason why I say this. For us, even who do believe in Jesus, every life issue ultimately comes down to, do we believe what God really says? Do we really believe what God has done for our lives? Do we really trust him in every situation of our life? And what I began to see is this, and it's nothing against it, but Jesus met me in my apartment here in San Marcos by myself. It wasn't a church service, wasn't music, and all these different things are great, but what I began to see is that there was a God who was in heaven who would meet me in my lowest place when I was really willing and ready to take myself out. That was the Jesus who met me, who said, you know what, Shad? I love you at your lowest. I love you in your deepest, darkest state that nobody sees or understands. And it was in that moment that I found out that I was no different than Adam and that Jesus was greater than Adam because it was all a test, a test to see if I trusted him. See, Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. He didn't do what God said. I was failing in life. But Jesus triumphed in his test in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was tested over and over by the devil. Do you believe God? See, Adam ran from God when he sinned. I ran from God. I was running everywhere else. But God ran to me. That's the difference between us and every other religion. Every other religion says, here's God. Do all you can to get to him, and maybe you'll obtain him. And God says, that gap's too big, baby, so I'm going to leave heaven and come to you. That's the difference. That's the difference is that God will meet you wherever you're at if you just say, I'm here. I need you. And this scripture remained true to me for my entire life. Even to this moment, it's Psalms 112, 6 through 8, and it says this, For the righteous, those who are in right standing now with God, will never be removed. He will be remembered forever by who God is. He is not afraid of bad news because his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. I am no longer afraid of the bad news that can happen in my life because of the good news of Jesus. Yes. That's it. Like, I don't have to be afraid of everything that comes to me. And you know what? Fear is a natural emotion. Fear happens, but it's not right for you to be fearful. To be full of fear to where it just, it tames you and you can't even move or think or do anything that God has called you to do. Like, yeah, there's a lot of bad things that have happened to me this past year. Sitting up in a counseling center, dealing with depression, dealing with all these different things. But you know what? The one thing that I can trust in is who Jesus is and what he's done for my life. That's the one thing I got. That's all I got is trusting in the good news of Jesus. And when you are righteous, you can say, you know what? I may not know how this situation is going to turn out, but I know who God is. And I know that he's unchanging. And so I'm going to put my hope and my trust in him and everything else will follow. But that's your choice. You have a choice to say, do I believe in the good news of Jesus or do I believe in the bad news that the world is throwing at me? See, in conclusion, your life and your soul can only be safe in the hands of Jesus. And the value of life or anything that's in life is not just people's perception of what they think is valuable. It's actually values considered of whose hand it's actually in. And I'm going to explain that a little bit. So this is a tennis ball from Walmart that costs 50 cents. 
because I don't spend a lot of money on stuff, all right? I'm a missionary, I don't have that much money, all right? So I'm going to keep my tennis ball. Y'all can't have this, all right? So this is worth 50 cents in my hands, all right? It's 50 cents in your hands. But if you put this tennis ball in Serena Williams' hands, it will make you $28 million this year. Pretty good exchange. I want Serena to have this tennis ball, all right? <laughs> See this golf ball right here, 50 cents also, from Walmart, y'all get the picture. I only buy stuff. I don't buy stuff over a dollar. All right, 50 cents. <laughs> 50 cents in my hand. 50 cents in your hands. You put it in Tiger Woods' hand, even though he's in a little slump right now, but over his entire career, it's worth $1.3 billion. That's $206,000 per round of golf. I don't think anybody else is that good in golf. But I got something else. You see this 10 peg right here? About worth a dollar in my hands. But in Jesus' hands, it was worth his entire life. And it was worth your entire life. And everything that you're going through right now, and everything that you're facing, and everything that you won't trust God in, God said, hey, I did this for you. And so now the question is this, is will you take the trust of your life out of your hands and put your trust in the hands of someone who allowed nails to be driven through it? Will you trust them that much? Will you trust them with your life, your eternal status in every situation that you're going through? Do you trust them? And I know it's hard, but I want to ask you, how's your life working out for you when you don't trust them? How's your situation turning out when you don't put everything inside of his hands? And for many of you, you've heard about Jesus, but you don't know this Jesus. The Jesus that you'll put everything on the line for him for. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to accept him fully. And for many of us who are believers in this room, you have a situation in your life right now that's been keeping you up at night, worrying you all throughout your days, And it's not changing. And God is saying, I died for that too. I let this nail, this tent peg be driven through my hands and my feet for this situation. And God is saying, do you trust me? Will you give it to me? I didn't say, will you give up on it? Will you give it to him? And it's scary. But I'll tell you what, your life, your soul, and everything that has to do with your life is safer in Jesus' hands. Do you trust it in yours, or do you trust it in his? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there's somebody in here who hasn't fully given their life to Jesus. The Jesus that says, I want all of you. I want every one of your situations. I want you now. I want you at your lowest And you really don't know me because you keep practicing the same sin issues over and over and over again. But he's saying, despite all that, I love sinners. I may not, I hate sin, but I love sinners. And he's saying he wants you right where you are today. And if you're saying, I want to give my life fully to Jesus. I want to place my full entire life in the hands of the man who allowed nails to be driven to his hand. If that's you, I just want you to slip your hand up quietly and just slip your hand up if that's you. Thank you, God, for these hands. 
As a church, we're going to pray for them together and with them, with our eyes still closed. We are going to say, dear Jesus, I thank you for your goodness, because without your goodness, I could not see how bad I really am or my life situations. And today, I put my full trust in your hands because you allowed nails to be driven through your hands and your feet. And you died for me while I was still a sinner. And I thank you for that. And I trust you in every area of my life for all of eternity and while I'm here on earth. God, I thank you that heaven is rejoicing, that you chose me and I chose you today. In Jesus' name. And while our heads are still bowed, there are other people here in this room who are saying, I have a situation that seems like it's not going right. And I need God to work a miracle. And I'm here to tell you, you know what? From Jesus' birth to his death, his whole life was a miracle. He experienced everything that you faced. And you need him to come through in your life. And it's bothering you. It's wearing you down. And God is saying, do you trust me with it? And if you're saying, I need prayer for God to do a miracle in a situation in my life, would you just raise your hand? As I raise my hand also. God, we give this to you. But we give it to you in faith saying that you're going to do what you said that you're going to do. You're going to be the God who raises things that seem dead. You're the God of the resurrection. You can fix this, God. And I may not know the entire outcome of the situation, but I trust you that you can handle it. I trust that your way is the best way, God. And I pray that you would bring hope to everybody who is in this room, because that hope brings holiness, God. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust you and believe in you, because you are the God that makes all things new. We believe in you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of this message, I said that God wants to involve you in his plan to redeem the world, and it requires your involvement. So whether you've given your life to Jesus many years ago, or you just gave it today, you now have an obligation from God to give that off to somebody else. And Pastor Peter is going to talk about that. Thank you all for having me today. Praise God.